Our scripture reading today is Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Our scripture reader is C.O. Gerlach. In honor of God's word, please stand. Listen as I read. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is this that we hear each one of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Our, uh, our, our sermon today, we're in a series uh, uh, called Presence. And uh, it's a four-week series, and today is, is week three uh, of the series. And in the first week of the series, we looked at the incarnation, which is um, Jesus uh, becoming, uh, taking on a human body and coming to earth and living among us. And so it's his presence in a physical, human way coming to earth. Last week, we looked at the ascension. And, uh, you know, we said it's a little wonky because uh, we t- we're talking about presence, and yet we're going to preach a sermon on Jesus leaving. Um, but it, it, last Sunday was Ascension Sunday, and he was leaving to, to be with the Father. And so he left us to be present uh, with the Father in a unique way. Uh, today is Pentecost Sunday, and we are going to look at Pentecost, which is the coming of the Spirit. And next Sunday is Trinity Sunday, and we will be looking uh, at the subject matter of the, the, the Trinity. But the goal of this series has been and is to see the links that God would go to, uh, has gone to, to recreate a world where his presence is more fully experienced by you and me uh, and, and the whole world. And each Sunday, we've just briefly referenced this this little sequence that happens in Exodus 33. And in Exodus 33, it's early on in the history of Israel, but they are not doing well. It's it's been a little bit of a train wreck, and it hasn't. And it's you know these these chapters, uh, Israel is is is, uh, they're fumbling it pretty bad. And there's this indication that God has kind of run out of gas with them. He's a little fed up with their arrogance and their stubbornness, and it's like God would have every right to just wipe them out. And in Exodus 33, what we find out, uh, what the writer says, is that Moses, he talked with God like a man talks with his friend. And it's just this beautiful little picture of like, man, like Moses talked to God like that? Like a man talks to his friend? Like you talk to your buddy? Like your, your, your close friend? Like that's how, that's how Moses communicated. It's pretty incredible. And when Moses realizes how bad things are, how, how the nation of Israel has been living in rebellion, lack of teachability, arrogance, and pride... Moses goes to God, 
And what he says to God is this. If you don't, I mean, you're like, I get why, I get, you have every right to be mad at them. But if you don't come with us, then just let us die. The, the verse is actually, if your presence will not go with me, then don't bring us up from here. He means leave, leave us in the desert. If you're not with us, leave us in the desert. It's not worth it. So the question we've been dabbling with or thinking through is like, how do you get there? How do you get to the place to where when you look at your life, you say, like, I so desperately need, to, need you that if you're not with me, God, then just like, just, it, there's no point in living. There's no point in going forward. And that's where Moses was. The suggestion that we've been making is that you've got to see the glory of the presence of God. You've got to see the glory of the presence of God. And when you do, you'll realize that it is the most essential thing in the whole world. You know, the word glory just means weighty. And so the idea is that when we see the significance, the weightiness of God's presence, we, we realize how great and grand it is. And see, when you run into something that's heavier than you, it reorients you. You don't reorient it. When, when something's heavier than you, then it, 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 it is the one that calls the shots. And, and Moses was in the presence of God. Moses had these incredible engagements with God, and it totally changed his life to the degree that he looked at his life and said, if you're not with me, it's not worth going on. Well, today is Pentecost, and we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 2, and we're going to see that the Spirit of God shows up in an unprecedented way, unique in the history of the world, an incredibly important event in the history of the world. And there's three kind of supernatural signs that show up here. We see wind, fire, and speech. So let's, let's take a look uh, at this text. It's a, such a great text. So first, outside of us. In Acts chapter 2, verse 2, uh, here's, here, well, first couple verses, here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing, a mighty rushing wind. A mighty rushing wind. So there's this wind imagery. And where did this wind come from? It came from heaven. And what, 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 what we're being invited to realize here is that God took action, that God initiated, that God sent. A couple weeks ago when we looked at the incarnation, we realized that Jesus came. The most famous verse in the whole Bible is that God so loved the world that he sent or he gave his own son, that, that his son came to this earth. God is a God who initiates. God is a God who takes action. And this is helping us understand how the Bible thinks and teaches about our relationship with God. And it's, it's a really important uh, idea, especially in our culture. Because our culture says, our problem is out there, and we have the solutions in here. So, so what, what I need to do is I need to dive in here and come up with my, with my solutions. You, you know these phrases. That I got to be true to myself, you, you do you, got to be me. All, all of this language is this sense of saying, I've got, my, I've got the solutions. I, I come in here, I, I dig around inside of myself, and that's how I find out what I should do. That's how I solve my problems. But the Bible says that our problem is primarily in here. That our, problem, our primary problem is not out there, it's actually in here, and the solution is actually out there. That, that we actually are in desperate need of help. And the Bible has the audacity to say, 
you don't have what it takes to solve your biggest problem. No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, you don't have the resources to solve your biggest problem. You need help, and you need help from outside of yourself. Uh, A few years ago, I I was reading a, a, a therapist that's based in California, and they were saying that over the last 15 to 20 years of their practice, they've noticed there's a shift from people who came to see them who are unhappy. And he, they said that what the shift is, that when people come in and they, they talk to me about their problems, the shift has been that more and more people are coming in and asking me how to get somebody else to change. How to get somebody else, like how, how, can, I, how can I get them to change? Or how, how can I fix this person that's causing all these problems in my life? And they said over these 15 to 20 years, less and less people were coming and sitting in their office and saying, I want to change or I need to change. And more and more people were showing up and saying, I need you to help me change that person. You see, it's reflecting this cultural idea that the problems are out there. I'm not the problem. The problems are out there. And these, these these people are the ones who need to change. Doesn't that sound hopeless? I mean, look, if your view of the world says all of my problems are caused by other people, you you are going to be a miserable person. Thankfully, God knows that we need help. He knows that we need help outside of ourselves. And so he took the necessary step. He initiated. He came. First, he sent his son. And here in Acts chapter 2, he sends his spirit like a mighty rushing wind. And this is an invitation for us to remember that the gospel is not the story of how we get to God. The gospel is the story of God coming to us. So a recognition that we need a rescue from outside of us is one sign that the Spirit of God is at work in us. It's it's one sign of the presence of God in us is that we actually realize that we need an outside source. Next, inside of us. So outside of us, now what about inside of us? Verses 3 and 4 say, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So we had wind wind imagery in the first couple verses, and now we've got fire imagery. It says uh, this, this, this fire shows up. It appeared to them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, throughout the Bible... Fire is constantly used to represent the special presence of God, the glory of God. Abraham, in in the book of Genesis, when Abraham enters his covenant with God, there's there's fire and there's smoke in that meeting. When Moses uh, first gets introduced to God at a burning bush, Moses meets with God on Mount Sinai. It's covered in smoke and fire and and all of this imagery. The wilderness wandering, they follow a pillar of fire at night and they follow a pillar of smoke during the day. The tabernacle, the temple, when these places are, are, uh, when they're dedicated, they are filled with smoke and fire. All of these things are images of the presence of God. That when God fills something, smoke and fire are part of the deal. It's a sign of his unique presence. You know what's happening here in Acts 2? When this fire shows up, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, What's happening is that every Christian is becoming a temple filled with the unique presence of God. You know, a couple weeks ago, we just traced this little theme of temple in the Bible. And we said, you know, you could start at the very beginning of the Bible and trace this idea of temple. And this, a temple is a place 
where divine space and human space overlap. And so the Bible starts with a place that we call the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, it was perfect overlap. God's presence, divine presence, and human presence. Right there. God walked with Adam and Eve in, 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 in intimacy and friendship. And then we have these other things that we've already mentioned. Things like the tabernacle and the temple where it's divine space and human space overlapping. It's this little spot where it, it, God is, it's a gift from God to go there and there's something unique happening with the presence of God. Then Jesus shows up and Jesus is divine space and human space meshed together. And now here, it's happening in individual Christians. This is it. This is when the power of God began inhabiting his people in a unique way. And this was promised in the Old Testament. Joel and Ezra and Jeremiah, the Old Testament says, you know what, there's going to come a day where God is going to be with his people in a way he's never been before. It says, that I'm going to pour my spirit out. All those promises, here they are. They're being met and kept and answered in Acts chapter 2. On this day we call Pentecost. And N.T. Wright said that Pentecost is the moment when the personal presence of Jesus with the disciples is translated into the personal power of Jesus in the disciples. And so the presence of Jesus, it, 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 it transforms and it's, and it's transfigurated. It's, it's moved from Jesus in a physical body to the spirit indwelling their hearts. It's the inauguration of a new, a new era. You know, in verse 3, don't miss this, it says that it came on each of them. So what happened here in Acts 2, yeah, it equipped the 12 apostles. You know, in chapter 1, God looked at, at, at or Jesus looked at his, his apostles, and he said, I want you to be my witnesses. And here in, you know, in, here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world, I want you to be my witnesses everywhere, in every corner of the world. But don't go yet, because I'm sending help. Help's coming. So don't go yet. Well, here, actually, here's the help. The help has showed up. And the help is phenomenal. It's the presence of God in their very hearts. But it doesn't just fill the 12 apostles. It says it fills all of them. And the indications are that there's about 120 people there. So yeah, the 12 apostles, but all of the people. And this is the good news of the gospel. When you trust Christ, he makes you new. He makes you alive. How does he make you alive? His spirit comes into your life and he makes your heart go from dead to alive. He, he, he brings spiritual life to a dead heart. He does that through the spirit of God. So what is the spirit doing in you? The spirit of God has flooded into your life. If you've trusted Christ as your savior, the spirit is now in you. What is he doing? Well, the Bible actually says that the spirit of God is doing quite a few things. But let me point to a couple. Right after this text, Peter stands up, and you can see it in the second half of chapter 2. Peter stands up and preaches this killer sermon, this great, great sermon. And uh, thousands and thousands of people respond in faith to Peter's sermon. But if you read through Peter's sermon that he preaches, you see him pointing to Jesus as at least two things. He points to Jesus as both the one who will save you, and he points to Jesus as the one who should be your Lord. And the word Lord means master, or it can even give this idea of being the king, be, being the boss. And so as Peter 
has the Spirit of God flood into his life in the first part of chapter 2. He then stands up, and his understanding of who Jesus is is clearly one who both saves you and he's Lord of your life. He's the king. He's the one who calls the shots. And how the Spirit brings that to bear? Let me just say this. Say it this way. The Spirit comforts our hearts. So in Romans chapter 8, we are told that the Spirit of God is whispering to us that we are loved members of the family. That if you've put your hope in Jesus, that you've actually been brought into the family, and there's going to be times where you're going to doubt that. But the Spirit says, no, no, you've been adopted. You're a loved child of the family. And so the Spirit is at work in the hearts of those who've placed their faith in Jesus to remind them that Jesus really does save you through his radical love. And you know, man, you, you may be, maybe you put your faith in Jesus, but it's hard to believe that he's actually going to save you. It's like, you, 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 you heard it, you've read it, you've, put, you've, you've prayed a prayer, you've put your faith, but man, it's hard to believe that he's actually really going to save you. Well, guess what? There is a passage in Isaiah 25, and it's talking about the future, and it's so, so beautiful, because in Isaiah 25, this is what they said. The day is coming at the, at the end of time when, when the new kingdom shows up, and we're going to say this. We put our faith in him, and he did it. We put our faith in him, and he actually saved us. Like, even if you die fully confident that you've put your faith in Jesus, and, and we're invited to have that confidence, when it actually happens, it's still going to be a stunner. We're, we're, we put our faith in him, and he, can you, he did it. Can you believe he did it? And so as, as you consider this reality of Jesus as a Savior, I understand if it's a little hard to believe that he just saves you, that he just, he just does it because you ask him. And the Spirit is at work to comfort your heart, to remind you that his salvation really is that crazy. It really is that scandalous. It really is that radical. But the Spirit also confronts our actions. So the Spirit comforts our hearts, but the Spirit also confronts our actions. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, he's going to convict you. He's actually going to have the audacity to look at you and say, like, you're not living your life right. He's going to step on your toes. You know the first time that we meet the Spirit of God in the Bible? The first time you meet the Spirit of God is in Genesis chapter 1, right off the bat. And the Spirit is at work in the work of creation, bringing order out of chaos. That's what the Spirit does. And you know what the Spirit wants to do in you? as the Spirit has now indwelled your life, if you've put your faith in Jesus, the Spirit wants to bring order out of the chaos of your life. The Spirit actually has the audacity to say to you, that's not the way to live. That's not in line with God's good way. He's going to convict you, and he's going to correct you. Are you ready for that? You know, I, one of the primary battlefields uh, in our current culture is the battlefield of personal freedom. Freedom is a really important piece to having a legitimate life. Like, to find meaning in life, you need a level of freedom. So that's, a level of freedom is good. But too much freedom, too much freedom is, is, is deadly. And, you know, there are two current examples of, of this, this battle or this issue with personal freedom. And the examples are these. Abortion and assault weapons. 
You know, but both are in the crosshairs right now. It might be unlikely, but it's possible that in the month of June, both of those things could lose federal protection. It's possible. But have you noticed, no matter what you think about that legislation, have you noticed how most people defend them? It's personal freedom. It's my rights. It is the go-to explanation for both of those issues, abortion and assault, uh, assault weapons. Our addiction to personal freedom is killing us. It is literally killing us. You know, when I, just a couple years before I was born, my parents are, are here today, just a couple years before I was born, abortion didn't have federal protection. And when I was 18 years old, there was an assault ban. You couldn't buy an, you couldn't buy an assault weapon when I was 18 years old. So it's not like we haven't addressed these before, but we're in a moment where our personal freedoms are so dominant that we can't even imagine. We can't even imagine it. And listen, it's not just those political issues or those, those things that have laws. Think about your own life. Think about how often your explanation for not following God's good way is you want to do what you want to do. I want to do what I want to do. I don't obey God because I don't want to obey God. And you know, the Spirit comes into our life and the Spirit of God wants to free us from the addiction of personal freedom. But not just that addiction. He wants to free us from every addiction. From the, every, every addiction that, that takes us from God's good way. The Spirit wants us to know in the deepest part of our hearts that Jesus loves us and that Jesus leads us and that he's going to step on our toes. And just me bringing up those two issues, all the polling shows that very, very few people think that both of those things are a problem. Very few people. So I understand if I offended you because it's, you know, it's a high percentage that I did. It's an invitation it's an invitation to actually recognize the footprint that personal freedom has in our culture, but then to ask the better question. What does personal what's the footprint of personal freedom in your own heart, in your own life? Do you recognize that the Spirit of God in you wants to change you, wants to reshape you, not based on one political party's platform, but on the truth of the Scriptures? So outside of us, inside of us, and then to all of us. In, in verse 4, it says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. So we had wind, we have fire, now we got speech. And this is a miracle, but it's not a miracle of hearing. It's a miracle of speech. They're all there. It says there's all these nationalities. They're all there, but they hear the message of the gospel in their own language. Look at verses 7 and 8. The, the, the gist of those verses is that people who, they, they had their own languages, and they look at these Galileans who are preaching the gospel in all of these foreign languages. And these people look and they're like, those people are from Galilee. They're, they're not cultured. Galileans aren't cultured. They're not educated. You know, they're like people from like, I grew up near West Virginia. It's like people from West Virginia. They, like, they, what do they know? 
That's what we thought growing up. And it's like, you looked at a Galilean, it's like, what does a Galilean know? And yet, here they are, and they're all preaching the gospel in all of these foreign languages. And everyone there is hearing the message of the gospel in their own tongue. You know, when the Bible talks about tongues, the spiritual gift of tongues, it says that they need to be interpreted. These don't need to be interpreted. This is a miracle where on this day when the Spirit shows up and the gospel is preached, God gave uneducated Galileans the ability to declare the gospel in languages that they did not know. But the people out there knew them. And all these people who have all these different languages, it's pretty incredible. So see this. this is what, one of the things that the Spirit does in us is that he crushes cultural elitism. Uh, a few years ago, I ran into a guy, Laman Santa, and he, he's, his most popular book is a book called Whose Religion is Christianity? Uh, and he, just, he died in 2019. But he makes this great case that part of what God is doing in Acts chapter 2 is that he is intentionally and overtly declaring that following Jesus is not based on one language or one people group. As God, in Acts chapter 2, as God launches this new chapter for the people of God, he is declaring right off the bat that this gospel is for everybody. Lamanstana, he, he grew up Muslim, and he contrasts this with the way that Muslims think. And this is, this is what he said. Islam teaches that God speaks Aramaic. And so any translation of the Quran is invalid because God speaks Aramaic. Now, look at Christianity. There's a bunch of translations on day one. The gospel gets preached in Acts chapter 2 in a whole bunch of different languages. Right off the bat, God gives this great gift. And he says this gospel is not tied to one language and to one people group. This gospel is for all people. It's for everybody. Everybody gets to hear it. Everybody gets the chance to respond. So it, one of the things that we can be invited to is to not think of our style of Christianity as the right way. How long should a sermon be? I know you got opinions on that one. How, how, long should, how long should a service be? How many songs should we sing? What instruments should we use? We, we should not get caught up in our style and thinking that that's like the right way. Be careful with that. Look at what they did in, in verse 11. The Spirit shows up, and you know what they're fascinated with? In verse 11, it says, the mighty acts of God. That's what's being declared in all the languages. The mighty acts of God in the world. The mighty acts of God through the person of Jesus. You see, the gospel itself is the core. The gospel is the right way, not our cultural expression of it. And you know, you, you know I've, I've said this before, and, and you, you might know this uh, just from your own time and thinking, but do you know that Christianity is the only world religion whose hub has moved? Every other world religion, where it started, where its original hub was, it's still there. It's still the hub. But not Christianity. Christianity started in the Middle East, and then its hub moved to Europe, and then it moved to North America. And now the indications seem to be that it's either going to move to Asia or to Africa in the generations ahead. It's moved three times. No other world religions moved once. You want to know why? Because it's this great declaration that the message of the gospel is not coming to you with cultural declarations. 
It's not coming to you saying, this is the language. These are the clothes. These are the songs. These are the instruments. No, it's so much better than that. It's so much more fundamental than that. It's this message. It's this declaration. It's news. It's facts. The message of the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to the earth and conquered sin, Satan, death, and all of our enemies. And he went back to the Father, but he's coming back to make all things new. That's a declaration. And that declaration can be, can be made in any language to any people group all over the world. When Jesus said, I want you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, this is exactly what he had in mind. The gospel has spread across this entire globe. It's pretty incredible. Well, there's a, a sequence of events that happens in the book of Genesis that I want to point to before I end this point. And in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, there's something that happens called the Tower of Babel. And what, what, what goes on there is I just was talking a minute ago about temples being a place where divine space and human space overlap. Well, in Genesis 10 and 11, there's a group of people that are from a, a, a wide range, uh, and, and they say, you know what? We're not waiting for God. We're going to build our own thing. We're going to build our own tower to the heavens. We're going to build our own temple. And so they, they set to it. They, they start building this incredible structure to reach to the heavens. They're not going to wait for God. They're going to they're do it. They're going to get it done. Well, God uh, doesn't see that as, as a real positive development. And God comes and, and he judges them. But do you know how God judges the people at the Tower of Babel? He, he comes along and here they are coordinated and working together to build this tower. And he confuses them by giving them a whole bunch of different languages. And now they can't continue the project because they speak different languages. And one of the principles that you can take from that is that our world, humanity itself, is divided because of its arrogance, because of its pride. You know, at the tower, all these people were gathered together and they had one language, but then they couldn't understand each other. At Pentecost, they all had different languages, and yet through the act of God, they could all understand each other. They could all hear this one gospel news. You see, at Pentecost, the curse of division is starting to be reversed. Right off the bat, the Spirit shows up, and the Spirit is declaring unity and diversity. Right off the bat, the Spirit is saying, you speak different languages, you're from different places, same gospel. And you can hear it in your own tongue, and yet it will unite you in the person of Christ. So diversity is one of the clear signs that the Spirit is at work. And boy, do we want to see it. We want to see diversity in, in, the, in the global church, and we want to see the diversity in, in, in this church. The diversity of education, and the diversity of economics, and the diversity of politics. Can you believe it? What if that happened? What, what a statement to the world if the people of God could actually have different politics and yet be in communion because the gospel is true. You know, Jesus gathered together an interesting group of people. He had some that were the most conservative Jews you could imagine. They, they, they were for killing the Romans. And then he had others that were working with the Romans. And yet Jesus brings them into his group. And he says, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you what it's like to be united in me. Jesus wasn't afraid of people who had different political views. As long as the gospel was the center. So, 
outside of us, inside of us, to all of us, and lastly, standing for us. Verse 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Have you ever thought, like, why did the Spirit come on this day? Pentecost means 50th. Why did the Spirit come on the 50th day? Why did the Spirit come on the 45th day or the 21st day? Well, in the Old Testament, if you were to read the book of Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all those, uh, all those books reference this, Pentecost was one of Israel's feasts. And Pentecost was always 50 days after Passover. Always. It marked the time that Moses ascended Mount Sinai 50 days after the very first Passover in Egypt. And he went to that mountain to enter a covenant with God. Now here we are, thousands of years after that first Passover in Egypt, and that trip that Moses took to Mount Sinai in the wilderness. Acts chapter 2, we see Pentecost, and it has similarities, and it has dissimilarities with what happened with Moses. In both cases, God came down. In the, first Pente- uh, in the first Pentecost, God met with Moses on a mountain. In the second Pentecost, tongues of fire and the Holy Spirit. In both the, the first Pentecost and Acts chapter 2, fire shows up. In both the first Pentecost and in Acts chapter 2, there's a message. The first Pentecost, they get the Ten Commandments. The second Pentecost, the gospel is preached in all of these different languages. In the first Pentecost on Mount Sinai, the people were scared. And they had rejected God. And so Moses had to become their mediator. Moses became this bridge. And when the people of Israel sinned, Moses would go to God and Moses would pray for them and intercede for them. Well, in Acts chapter 2, fire does not just come from a mountain. Fire goes into every single heart. And instead of Moses as the mediator, Jesus is the new mediator. And Jesus is the mediator between God and his people. He is the ultimate bridge. But he's far greater than Moses because when we sin, Jesus doesn't just intercede for us. He does, but he doesn't just intercede for us. Jesus actually died for us so that we could be brought to God. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus is now our mediator. He is the true and better mediator. And Jesus brings this thing that the Bible calls this new covenant, this new relationship that that mankind can have with God through Christ. And the Bible tells us that this new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. And Paul, in one of his letters, he says, think about this. When that first thing happened, Moses' face glowed. That first covenant was so great that Moses' face glowed. But this second covenant, is so much better than that. If the first covenant made Moses' face glow, shouldn't the second covenant, the new covenant, make our faces glow even more? You know, if you, if you notice the last verse that we read in our scripture reading, some of the people that are observing what happened at Pentecost, they say, this is, they're drinking new wine. These people are drunk. No one's this happy. Unless they're drunk. That's the conclusion. Look at it in verse 13. This has got to be, this has got to be wine. There's no other explanation to that kind of joy. Why would they say that? Well, drinking makes you happy. Drinking lowers your fears, lowers your inhibitions, 
Some people call alcohol liquid courage. It loosens you up. Well, the Bible says that the Spirit makes you happy. That the Spirit lowers your fears and lowers your inhibitions. That the Spirit of God actually loosens you up. But boy, is there a huge difference. Alcohol is technically a depressant. It, it literally depresses part of your brain. So in, in other words, I heard a person say one time, alcohol actually brings joy through stupidity. Literally, through stupidity. It dulls you, you know, the, the tough things in your life so that you can feel like you escape from it. But what does the Spirit do? The Spirit is not a depressant. The Spirit of God is an enhancer. The, the Spirit of God does not bring joy through stupidity. It brings joy through reality. The Spirit of God is actually giving you glasses to see the world as it really is, bringing the truest true. This declaration of what God is doing in the world. And so if that old covenant lit Moses up like that, shouldn't the new covenant, this message of Jesus rescuing us in spite of us, by grace through faith alone, shouldn't that light us up more? Shouldn't people be looking at us and saying, what, what is wrong with them? That must be some new kind of wine. How do you explain that kind of happiness? Paul says that when the Spirit shows up, we face the world now with a whole different posture, full of hope, bold, free, slowly but surely transforming, whether you feel like you are or not. This is the new covenant, and this is what the Spirit brings right into your heart, the presence of God right into your life. This is the Spirit of God bringing this reality of Jesus standing on your behalf. Jesus as your intercessor, but even more as this ultimate mediator who brings you to God. And every Sunday we end our service with the, the Lord's Supper. And we do it because it's a weekly reminder. It's a weekly reminder that we have a better covenant. And that as the people of God, we have every reason in the world to have joy and hope overflowing that we can look at the brokenness of the world and yet we know where the story is going. And so as you come to the table today, I want to invite you to come and eat, to come and remember, to come and give thanks. The bread represents the body of Christ broken for you. The cup represents his blood spilled for you. And because he did what he did, God's plan has been unfolding and the spirit has now come. Uh, there's, uh, actually, uh, there's two, ser uh, two stations here at our second service. So there'll be some music and a song. And whenever you're ready, come, come receive the elements. Uh, servers, please come. Let's pray. God, thank you for this text. We thank you for the, the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the good news of the Spirit's arrival. God, it might have uh, been confusing for Jesus' followers to hear that they were supposed to wait uh, and, and not actually start this great project because help was on the way. And God, I think it's pretty, pretty correct to say that the help was better than they could have imagined, better than they could have guessed, that this, this, this idea of your presence in us all the time, with us all the time, at work in us all the time, forming us into the image of Jesus, both comforting us and convicting us, God, giving us eyes to see the world as it is, 
seeing it with the recognition that this story is headed somewhere. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.